narayanam padma bhavam vashishtam shaktim chatat putra parasharancha vyasam sukham gaudapadam mahantam govinda yogendra mathasya shishyam shri shankaracharya mathasya padma padam chahasta malakam chashishyam Tantrotakam vartitaka ramanyam asmat kurunsan tatamanatosmi. Om. 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 Amen. You may be wondering, you may be wondering what that was. That was something called a uh, invocation, a Guru Puja invocation. So why have I done that? So in this um, footnote that we're talking about today, it has um, essentially a whole load of names, names that are very important in our scripture and also to our lineage. So in some roundabout way, Guruji has uh, brought in some very classical um, traditional invocation of the lineage of gurus that um, go all the way to Narayan, uh, which is God, essentially, and um, all the way to Shankaracharya and his disciples. And all those ones that are in there, about 50% of them are talked about in this footnote, which is why I started off with the traditional chant, which is that... Um, Guru Puja, and I'll put a link to that, um, the whole Guru Mantra, Guru Puja, which is actually about six minutes long. I'll put a link to it if you uh, want to look at it, and and a link to all the lineage of the Gurus that are discussed in this footnote as well is in one wiki page. I'll put a link to that as well. Um, so <laughs> I was um, in, um, what's it called, in YSS uh, Ashram in Ranchi on Christmas Day. And they did uh, Guru Puja for Christ. And uh, obviously Christ is not in this uh, very traditional mantra, but this um, this lineage goes back 5,000 years old, you know. So it's a very, um, very old uh, lineage that we belong to. And we obviously belong to the lineage through Swami Sri Yukteswar from the Giri branch as well. So, uh, yes. So it starts off uh, this footnote with um, Shankaracharya, who was India's greatest philosopher, and he was a disciple, disciple of Govinda Jati. And uh, you'll notice that in the prayer at the start, I did I did chant Govinda Yoginda Matasya Shishyam, and then Shishyam means disciple. Shishya, uh, Govinda's disciple is Sri Shankaracharya, which was the ne next line. Sri Shankaracharya Matasya Padma. Yeah. So this is where it all uh, ties in. And you might also ask why I'm learning this. It was just coincidental that I happened to be I've, uh, registered for a course to uh, learn the traditional Guru Puja. And uh, it happens to uh, fall in with this footnote, which is a coincidence, which I know, Chris, you don't uh, necessarily subscribe to. <laughs> um, but yeah. And then he says Govinda Jati. Um, jati is uh, not in the chant, but Jati actually means um, uh, Ajata Vada or um, non-originational. It's essentially referring to what's going to be talked about a bit later in this, uh, where Shankaracharya um, you know, follows the Advaita Vedanta, i.e. the non-dual um, philosophy, um, which we're going to talk a lot about. A bit later, and by the way, uh, I'm with Chris, Mike, and Lauren, which didn't wasn't a convenient time to say. How is everyone doing? Very well. Great. I really enjoyed. I was sort of interesting earlier when I was saying that we could start with that every time quite happily. On my part, I really enjoyed that. Thanks for <laughs> thanks for that. I can uh, forward you a link. It's very um, uh, melodic. Um, yeah, it's a recital of uh, the puja. It's very nice. So um, the next next section is 
Shankara says that he wrote, uh, Guruji writes that Shankara wrote the beautiful lines, no known comparison exists in the three worlds of a true guru. Um, and the true gurus, gurus in our lineage, we've uh, just talked about in this chant mantra. And we're going to talk a little bit about stories of which um, and their lives a bit later on. Um, and then he says, if the philosopher's stone be assumed as truly such, it can only turn iron into gold not into another philosopher's stone. The venerated teacher, on the other hand, creates equality with himself in the disciple who takes refuge at his feet. The guru is therefore peerless, nay, transcendental, which is in the century of verses. There's um, lots of uh, lovely passages like that, that uh, praise the guru, um, in in the century of verses, so if you, I'll put a link to that. But uh, there's lots uh, lots of very lovely passages like that to inspire you. But this one that Guruji has picked is a gem. Um, one thing that you should note in, is that in Indian philosophy, there's something called a chintamuni, which is essentially the Indian uh, version of the philosopher's stone. But it um, it doesn't just deal with uh, gold <laughs> iron into gold it, uh, it's about manifesting manis, manifesting your um, highest realities so it's uh, goes a bit uh, further than that so uh, that's that so going going now to talk about the advaita philosophy that uh, is mentioned here so shankaracharya says that he he had a commentary on the famous mandukya garika and this little scripture is from the Upanishads and it is called Mundukya Karika because his guru Godapada wrote an explanation of it and the explanation was so uh, revered and respected but very complex so Shankaracharya then did a commentary on the explanation to the scripture which is the Upanishads and uh, Mundukya Karika means um, essentially like a Vedic school for those, you know, spiritual souls that are sitting, you know, that are distressed, but who want to sit at their guru's feet to, uh, you know, find their um, peace, as it were. So that's what that uh, means. And we're going to delve into that a little bit later. But uh, he says that um, with unanswerable logic and in a style and charm and grace, Shankara interpreted the Vedanta philosophy in a strictly Advaita which is a non-dual monistic spirit. And that is what he's famous, famous for. Um, one thing that uh, you should note is that uh, this is the school that um, essentially we um, in Self-Realization Fellowship and Paramahansa Yogananda, we fall into this school. And I'll explain why a little bit later. But first, let's talk about the um, scripture and the philosophy that uh, it has in it. So, Chris, do you want to read? This is in the in uh, the description of the book in the preface. Do you want to read what it says there? Sure. If a man cannot afford to study all the hundred and more Upanishads, it will be enough. It is declared in the Mukhikupanishad. If he reads one Upanishad of Mandukya, since, as Chakra also says, it contains the quintessence, quint sorry, quintessence, quintessence, all of them. Thank you. Of all of them. So, um, where does you might ask where does the Upanishad sit in the, you know, the great. Uh, Scripture of India, um, there's three, there's probably three categories of scripture in India. There's the, you'll know from the Bhagavad Gita, there's the Mahabharata, and there's the Ramayana, there's the Oedipus epics, of which you might say the autobiography of a yogi is in that uh, category. So that you would describe as something called Smriti. Smriti is something that's remembered. Now then, there's there's the Upanishads and the Vedas, which is Shruti. Shruti is that which is heard. So the Vedas is essentially lots of 
hymns and chants and rituals that uh, basically contain the religious practices that uh, Hindus perform in ceremonies, etc. And then there's the Upanishads, which are also known as the Vedanta. And those are detail the philosophical and the mystical aspects of existence. Um, and the Mandukya, which we're talking about, is one of the Upanishads. So that is uh, where that sits. So, Mike? So, I know about the Vedas, that they keep adding to the Vedas over the the centuries, right? So it never it never ends, and always the the saint of the time writes another Veda, or someone someone writes it for him. And the Upanishads is that the same way that that they have that there's really old ones, and then there's newer ones. I'm not aware of the newer ones, but there could be. I okay. So, I mean, newer as in Shankaracharya being. Oh, newest, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So, but yeah. th those are, so Shankaracharya's yeah. new one is, as we said, he's commenting on, on it. So then, if he's mm. a revered and respected philosopher, which he is, then it becomes like an addenda <laughs> to the original. Mm. So, in this Mundukya Upanishad, um, Mundukya Karika, he comments on the original text as Guruji does in God Talks with Arjuna, right? So then mm. would you describe uh, God Talks with Arjuna as um, a new text or just a revival of the old truth? Interesting. Yeah. And and um, did he himself declare this part of the Upanishad or was this done after him that people were like, oh, this fits there, let's put it there? No, no. He So he's commenting on specific strata of right. the Upanishad, um, mm. a very small okay. part of it, um, one which right, he is okay. one which he is an expert in, i.e., uh, non-dualism right. okay. or monism. Um, so let's let's talk about what uh, non-dualism or monism is in the context of self-realization fellowship, and we've got some readings from God Talks with Arjuna, then um, this reading describes it quite well, and it's from chapter four, verse eleven. So Lauren, could you? explain or read that out for us thank you god responds to the devotee in whatever aspect he holds dear to the true monist he reveals himself as the infinite to the sincere dualist he appears in the desired finite form water may manifest as small or big waves on the ocean or as surf foam or bubbles or as raindrops or icebergs but in those various forms it is, it's water is just the same. By the power of Maya or delusion, the spirit similarly assumes many forms, manifesting itself as numerous human beings endowed with free choice, working their way through various evolutionary stages, good or evil, bound or free, attached or non-attached, desireful or desireless. It is only because of restless delusion that men feel themselves apart from spirit and do not perceive his imminence within themselves and all nature. The yogi quiets this movement of duality by the meditation-born consciousness of unity, realizing thus how all dual manifestations of nature arise from and dissolve into the oneness of spirit and hence the monism because mm. uh, so Sri um, Ram Krishna Paramahansa when he was uh, going through his uh, mystical experiences he was very devoted to Kali Mata or the divine mother aspect but they he said in the God Talks with Arjuna in one of the descriptions that he had to destroy that limited form for him to merge with the infinite form so uh therein lies the monism element so the um, dual aspect which is the alternate um, aspect so there's advait which is what we're describing here and then there's um dvait, which is a dual aspect um and it's vishvate vish vishish Advait, which is a little substrata. So the, the so there's essentially two. There's Advait, which is what Shankaracharya is describing and essentially what we fall into. Then there's a Dvait 
And Dvait is the, the, the dual aspect. And the dual aspect is one where it's the, the Atman, our soul, is differentiated from God, i.e. two separations exist, which is um, two different um, perspectives on creation. I, are, are we completely one with God and are we not separate from him in any way? Or are we these two separate things? And Christianity goes a little bit further and goes Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's a, there's a bit of um, mismatching. But Guruji and um, our path is, as Shankaracharya says, is the Advaita or the non-dualistic or the monist. I, we are part, we are not just part of, we are God, but we just haven't uh, realized our ourselves yet. And we'll talk about uh, some examples of that a bit later, which Guruji uses and also Shankaracharya uses as well so that's that quite complex isn't it <laughs> <laughs> but this footnote uh, uh, is complex i can't really do much about that so um the next uh, is uh, the next part of uh, what he says is that uh, the great monist also composed poems of devotional love his prayer to divine mother for forgiveness of sins bears the refrain though bad sons are many never mm. has there been a bad mother mm. so this really highlights um, in india the really really high reverence and the personification of divinity and birth mothers and the strong respect that uh, children have for their mothers i know that exists in most cultures but um the divinity aspect i think is quite unique in uh, in india why connecting mother's love to divine love and it being a manifestation of that and so you know you have um, you have instances of there being such uh, respect and obedience that children would do <laughs> insanely um uh, what's the word <laughs> unreasonable things for, for the love and the grace of, mm -hmm. of the mother. Um, and often, or at times, it would be wrong. Uh, it would be the incorrect thing to do, but uh, they would follow it and all the same. And in the next section, we'll talk about how Shankaracharya tackled that, uh, that particular connection. So uh, it's a very old uh, cultural norm in India, but uh, one that is respected to this day. Um, so then... Guruji says that Lord Shankara was a rare combination of a saint, scholar, and a man of action. And we'll talk a little bit later about how he was a man of action, as we know already how he was a saint and a scholar from uh, <laughs> the discussion that we've just taken place. So mm. let's delve into the Mandukya Karika. Oh, Chris, before we do. Just a comment on that, um, that statement. Lord Shankara was a rare combination. I'm curious as to why these that might be true, as to why that might actually be a rare combination. You know, could a saintly scholar of an individual not be someone of, of action, so to speak? Um, Krishna was painted, not painted, sorry, colored blue, but um, whether that was actually the case or not, I've heard that blue was. I think we may have talked about it on the podcast about the color representing action. Um, and so I, I thought, gosh, it's actually in some ways, in a, in a shallow sense, uh, a shame because the one, the people of action that you'd want in the world would be those who are saintly and, and scholarly, but maybe often that's not the case. So it's just an observation like, yes, it's, it's true, isn't it? But it's a pity that maybe... It's not more people of action that, that would come from that, that help. Indeed. Uh, the, I think the reason he's saying it's rare is, is because to be a perfect scholar, um, as Shankaracharya is, and we're going to talk about how scholarly he is, you'd have to devote so much of your time to study and scripture and memorizing things and all that kind of stuff. How then would you have time for meditation? i.e. being a saint, or how then would you have time to be a man of action, i.e. Guruji, what did when he, you know, left India and came to America and toured 
essentially the whole of us and established the ashram and all those kind of things and similarly shankaracharya did just those things like he we're going to talk about that to what he established in india um and saints like in um you know in saints in in christianity for example saint francis um, of assisi he's not uh we we all acknowledge him to be an avatar right as shankaracharya clearly is an avatar but uh we don't consider him uh, a scholar or a man of action um so even in that uh, respect we uh but christ you'd consider in this uh, certainly in this category because he was all three of those wasn't he um so it's um there's I'd, it is it is a shame that isn't uh, there aren't many as, as you say chris but uh we can each think of examples of each of the three categories and multitudes of people that fit in either one of those categories, but not multiple people that fit in all three. Uh, Chris? Yeah. Maybe it's just the balance of things, like a, a little bit of light dispels a lot of darkness. I think Uruji said that analogy somewhere. Um, and maybe that's just the way it is, you know, God's light in the world. Maybe it's, there's more darkness in some ways and a little bit of light goes out, goes a long way to to enlighten the, the the darkness but yeah <laughs> it's a good story doesn't it yeah if anything. Indeed. so let's delve into the mandukya karika now so um we mentioned that it's a it's a description of uh, the upanishad who um, his his guruji writes and then it's a commentary on that description so there's a four different uh, distinct sections very big sections and it's a it's uh, for those who are interested i'll put a link to the book <laughs> um and the trans the english translation of course um in the footnote but it's uh i do warn you it is a heavy heavy philosophical discourse <laughs> such that you may not have uh, read uh, perhaps you could compare greek um, greek philosophers to, to that but uh this one i'd say goes very very deep and profound so I'll, I'll hopefully we'll talk about an example that's as simple enough for us to follow on this podcast and we'll read read out that later on but um he uses a really good analogy um for um illusion and maya he uses this analogy often in the book he's called um he, he compares a rope lying on the ground to a snake now if you um and especially if the rope is made to move you may think that it's a snake mm -hmm. but you'd be wrong it's just a rope and that he compares to the uh you know the maya the delusory nature of reality um and uh, he uses that analogy a lot especially in terms of the separation between us and uh, god the seeming separation so he uses that a lot it's four there's four sections the first one is um really about the orm vibration um, he uses that as the reference point or the symbol of our connection with our divinity and then we will of course remember the cosmic chant i am om which is also related to that um, and then you also um, remember the chant um, in sabhi kalpa samadhi yoga you will drown yourself in yourself in nirvi kalpa samadhi yoga you will find yourself in yourself so Guruji is very smartly um, not just uh, invented these uh, chants. If you read the um, Cosmic Chants book, virtually all the chants have got some uh, history, whether it's Shankaracharya, which there's a few actually that are directly from Shankaracharya, which we'll talk about a bit later, or it's Guru Nanak, or, uh, you know, it's from different um, other Indian um, scripture it's there's there's always a reference somewhere and he's very in this warm one he's um essentially some of these chants he's relating to very profound philosoph philosophy that you could get lost in i.e these what these two chants that i just referenced are very very in detail explained in this mandukya book but if we just chant these uh chants you know these cosmic chants that he's uh he said he spiritualized these chants we can essentially get to the essence without going through all the scholarly <laughs> effort um the second part is um 
is about illusion, the illusory nature. And uh, you'll remember a couple of chants related to that in the land beyond my dreams. Um, and when my dreams dream is done, she will lift me on her lap. So the, these chants refer to um, not just illusion, but the play on the separation between what we think is a dream and what we think is reality. And Guruji, we know, absolutely loves this analogy of it's all, you know, creation is just a dream and we just need to awaken to that. All this joy and suffering that we think is real is but a dream. And in this Mandukya, Garika, there's a whole chapter <laughs> talking about, uh, philosophizing about this notion. Um, and we're uh, going to read actually a really good example of this philosophical discussion in, in a minute. Um, then there's the core, the, the really hardcore philosophy chapter on Advaita. And this is the direct reference that Guruji makes in the um, in this footnote saying that, you know, Shankaracharya with, uh, you know, with absolutely beautifully explains the philosophy of Advaita. And you'll you'll remember the cosmic chant, Hymn to Brahma, and that is a direct uh, translation from Shankaracharya's poem. So this is it's actually from, it's not from the Mandukya, but uh, he actually references the philosophy and you know, the translations and the interpretations as is defined in the words of him to Brahma in from this book. So uh, we don't know where Shankaracharya came up with that chant, but we certainly know that where he was influenced. So you can, if you want to delve further, you can read this section of the book. And then there's also um, I am the sky, which is related. I'm the vast blue ocean of sky, also related to... Uh, you know, our connection with um, God, i.e. us not being separate from him. So there's that. And then the last chapter gets even heavier, actually. <laughs> it's an amalgam of all of the above concepts. So I mentioned uh, about the dream. Let's, um, let's pick up an example about the dream um, connection to reality. So this is in um, chapter two, verses six and seven. So first, we're going to play a little reading game. So Lauren's going to read out what the actual Upanishad text says. And then Mike and Chris are going to play the role. Mike is going to be an opposer, and Chris is going to be the responder. So uh, if you imagine, this is actually in the book. So these character, these uh, conversational roles are there for us, for the reader to understand. And this is a really hopefully an easy example for us to follow about this notion of illusion and dream. So Lauren, if you want to kick us off. That which is non-existent at the beginning and in the end is necessarily so non-existent in the middle. The objects are like the illusions we see. Still, they are regarded as if real. So as a reminder, this is in the scripture. And now we ha have what Shankaracharya added to this. So take it away, Mike. Be the opposer. This doesn't make sense. It does not make sense. The assertion that the objects perceived to exist in the waking state are illusory, like those of the dream state, is illogical. It is so because the objects of the waking experience, such as food, drink, or vehicles, etc., are seen to serve some purpose. That is, they appease hunger and thirst, a well, uh, as well as the work of carrying man to and fro. But this is not the case with the objects perceived in dream. Therefore, the conclusion that the objects perceived in the waking state are unreal, like those seen in a dream, is mere fancy. It is not so. Why? It is because the serving as means to some end or purpose, which is found in respect of food, drink, etc., in the waking state, is contradicted in dream. A man in, in the waking state eats and drinks 
and feels appeased and free from thirst. But as soon as he goes into sleep, he finds himself in dream, afflicted with hunger and thirst as if he were without food and drink for days and nights. And the contrary also happens to be equally true. A man satiated with food and drink in dream finds himself when awakened quite hungry and thirsty. Therefore, the object perceived in the waking state are contradicted in dream. Hence, we think that the illusions of the objects perceived in the waking state, like those of dream, need not be doubted. Therefore, both these objects are undoubtedly admitted to be illusionary on account of their common feature of having a being and an end. Beginning and end. So it goes on. It'll, the, the conversation will carry on for <laughs> 30 more pages about going deeper <laughs> and deeper into this conversation. And now you'll understand why Guruji says, you know, you know, Shankaracharya goes into beautifully expounds the difference, you know, between um, between truth and untruth, essentially. And you'll remember this conversational style of teaching is um, quite unique, isn't it? But you'll in scripture, it's very unique. I must say, in India, it does happen. Um, you know, when you have a guru, uh, the disciple just bombards, you know, bombards him with question after question after question. And you'll remember. Um, in God Talks with Arjuna, Arjuna, you know, keeps asking Krishna question after question after question. But Arjuna's questions are very innocent questions, you'd say, um, very simple questions. But here, you know, as Mike asked the question when he first started, the opposer, it wasn't he wasn't coming from no awareness. He was coming. He was a. It was a quite a deep question of. Uh, and if you just read the question by itself you'd be okay no, that's true you know that doesn't make any sense but then when chris responded it completely contradicts the question so then it, it will keep going like this and a very profound uh, question and answer not uh, which is slightly different to um god talks with Arjuna, where it's an innocent question and a very very powerful and beautiful answer which uh, krishna gives uh chris oh mike sorry go ahead mike i think there's a there's a very higher ages way of of solving conflict, right? I feel like in a lower age, someone would have drawn the sword after page two or something. <laughs> but this is, but this is a very they have they have a a, a way of of I don't I I just want they just want to bring their point across. They're really searching for truth, so very admirable. Yeah, we see Guruji do this in years in the Master Hermitage chapter. He spends. And he, he shortens this discussion by summarizing it by saying that he had an hour long tussle over over the question of uh, would you promise to reveal God to me that we're we're going to discuss um, later later episodes, but an hour long verbal tussle ensued over that question. So um, yeah, it, it's a it's a beautiful thing when you actually have two persons who are able to go into such detail with answers and challenges because um yeah you might lose the ability to ask the right questions to the to the problem so to speak and yeah you've got people here that are able to pierce through the veil and we can ride on to that conversation yeah and he's um these aren't uh so he's a pure uh, rationalist, uh, isn't he, Shankaracharya? So he's going delving deep into essentially what this reality is, what God is, and what our connection with God is. And the reason he does that is because um, in, in even in, in India, this uh, the, it was split between are you were separate from God and you know we're subservient to God. It's God's creation and we he created us and we're individual and will forever remain individual. So all these very profound concepts are quite um, uh, variegated in, in um, India. Even now there's different sects um, of, uh, of Hindus where, you know, will, for, will, will forever be individual. Whereas, you know, in, in Yogananda, he's, he says that 
we're, we're never we've never been individual we've just forgotten our identity you know we're we're one with we're one with god so there's different um takes and shankaracharya is really really hammering the uh the, the people on the other side yeah chris I wouldn't be a scholar with Christianity, but I think it's probably the same in Christianity as well. And I know when I talk to certain Christians, you know, we are seen as very much removed. Mm. God as as the whole as well. So, yeah, I would subscribe to Guruji's, um, you know, line of line of teaching. Talk. Um, it's much much nicer, but um, yeah, it, it's very yeah. subtle. It's very subtle because um, on. If you ask um, a Christian, uh, the scriptural ref the scriptural interpretation may be as you know as what you've just said, Chris. But if you ask some Christians, they'll be like, "Oh no, of course we're completely part of God. How can there's only creation? There's only God. God is creation. How can we be separate from creation? When when did our creation start? You know, all these kind of questions. So like even in within faith, there'll be slight." Uh, uh, nuances in in um, belief, um, but the scriptural interpretation would be this, you know. But this is what uh, Shankaracharya, through a discourse, is um, is politely challenging rather than uh, shouting it off from the rooftops. He's he's doing it uh, quite subtly. Um, so let's talk more about Shankaracharya because he was quite a quite a being, you might say. Guruji mentions and references him quite a few times um not only in you know cosmic chants where he's literally taking chants from from his teachings but also in various parts of even you know the even um what's it called even in the autobiography of yogi there's no less than like five to ten references of shankaracharya through various uh, means and similarly in the god talks with arjuna and uh, we've already told, you know, some of the stories about um, him and his disciples, but let's let's dig, dig a little bit deeper into him, because uh, in this section of the footnote, he says, like Guruji says, that he only lived 32 years, which is quite astonishing. And you, on, the, on the face of it, you may not think it's astonishing, but we'll explain why it's astonishing, because um, he says, Guruji says, many of those were spent in ardent, arduous travel to many parts of India, spreading his Advaita doctrine, but only thirty-two years. So let's um, let's talk briefly about what those thirty-two years um, in, uh, entailed. So we've got a f in the in the second coming of Christ. Oh, Mike, before we do that, at a point. I've, I two things. First, Christ was also thirty-three years old, I think, when he died. But it's I find it so interesting that. There's this young man coming, telling people about their beliefs and everything. And they go like, oh, yeah, finally, the the one we've been waiting for. That must be incredible how how he had this ability to get people um, to buy into his his version of the of the, the philosophy and the teachings. Indeed. So he we could we could um, most most uh, scholars associated him with about the 8th century um, being his birth um, so let's talk a little bit about his biography which is this is mentioned in the second coming of Christ uh, Mike do you want to read it out Swami Shankara often extolled as India's greatest philosopher the annuals surrounding him relate that Within his first year, he was proficient in languages. By age two, he could read. Having once heard something, he could re recall it and absorb its meaning intuitively. By the age of eight, he had mastered the Vedas and completed his formal education. Having become a wisdom expert in all the holy scriptures, writings, and six systems of Hindu philosophy, he preached throughout India his Advaita non-dualistic philosophy. The very best of the learned could not match him in debate. By 16, he had completed writing his extensive commentaries, which are veritable, re veritably revered to this day by scholars. Some of which uh, we've gone through today. Um, and earlier we said uh, how much a mother is revered and uh, equally, well, not equally, 
just slightly less. I'd say the father is revered. But, um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll remember that uh, Mukunda in the autobiography of a yogi, he struggled just um, in, was it in this chapter or the last? Um, it was in this chapter, actually, where, you know, he's, he said uh, he wants to leave, essentially, to join the ashram. His father was really reluctant and... Guruji gave this beautiful line, you know, where he said, you know, please, you know, allow me to go that I may come back with a diviner understanding and had this beautifully loving dialogue between them about, you know, essentially him leaving the family. And Shankaracharya, it seems, had a similar tussle with his mother. Let's hear how he tackled it. So, Chris, if you want to read that story out. Sure. The young Shankara followed her earnestly pleading. Mother, permit me to take to Sanyasa. She did not agree. When she got into the river for her bath, Shankara jumped into the river and going down the river for a while, he raised one hand and shouted, Other mother, a crocodile has caught hold of me. At least now permit me to become a Sanyasi. The mother said, if you can be saved from the crocodile by taking to sannyasa, you better do so, so that you may live. It doesn't matter whether as a celibate or a householder. Shankara then came out of the river and told his mother, in the ocean of Samsara, I was about to be drowned by a crocodile in the form of marriage. When you let me become a sannyasi, I was free from the hold of the crocodile. No one could marry a sannyasi. Sannyasa does not mean a mere change in the color of the robe. It is really a change in one's qualities. Shankara prostrated before his mother and took her leave to embark on his career as an aesthetic. At the time, the mother made Shankara gave a promise that he should come and see her during her last moments. Mm -hmm. So that's how Shankara beautifully tackled it with uh, innov innovation, <laughs> innovative uh, childish uh, childhood uh, thinking. But uh, he didn't just leave. Um, you know, he he being a true philosopher, he used uh, some situations to uh, or he manufactured some situations to help uh, his mother see the light shall we say and that is um so even for a shankara you know the respect for the mother is such that he at that point would have known the, the work that he has to do and how little time he has to do it but his mother's um you know limited identification with shankara as his as her son as opposed to shankara as the acharya um, was holding him back, but he didn't just leave. He waited until the moment was right and to set the example for all of us, I suppose, which is really nice. So uh, the next part says, millions gathered eagerly to hear the salacing flow of wisdom from the lips of the barefooted young monk. There's a really nice story, actually, with that, this barefooted young monk. It said that um, when he... Um, when he when he came to Kashi or Varanasi, he saw this old man and he was learning or memorizing and working on his Sanskrit grammar. And Shankaracharya, looking at him, he knew how long he had to live, which was not long. So he looked at him and he said, um, he kind of held the books to one side and he said to him, Bhaja Govindam which is a very beautiful chant. And essentially he was telling him, leave these, <laughs> leave this scholarly work to one side, chant, chant God's name because we don't have long. And then you'll remember Guruji's chant, which is, I think, probably related to this story, which is, oh, my saint, wake yet wake. You did not meditate. You did not concentrate and passed thy time in idle words oh my saint wake yet wake so the philosophy of um 
you know, and the approach that Shankaracharya took um, made waves through uh, India. You know, even this simple story is remembered with slight variations across the across India, you know, through tales, grandmother tales to their children. Um, and uh, there's a very, very beautiful chant that um, uh, Ram Krishna, Krishna Das does to this Bajagovindam. I'll put a link to that. Um, it's absolutely stunning. So there's that. Um, so then Guruji goes on further to explain, Shankara's reforming zeal included the reorganization of the ancient a monastic Swami order, and this was no mean feat, um, says here that um, to his new name, a Swami adds a word that indicates his formal connection with one of the 10 divisions, subdivisions of the Swami order. In the autobiography of Yogi, this is. These Dashanamis, or 10 agnomins, include the Giri mountain, to which Swami Sri Yukteswar Giri, and hence I myself belong which all of us belong to as well. Among the other branches are the Sagar, which is sea, Bharati, which is land, Puri, which is tract, Saraswati, wisdom of nature, Tirtha, place of pilgrimage, and Aranya, which is forest, which is in chapter 24. Um, all very beautifully um, important and uh, for, for, you know, propagation of uh, the Swami order as it is today. Mike? I, I think I just don't know this word in English, but what is meant by tract? Tract. Mm, probably the like path. Puri. Path, okay. Is that, is that what it is? <laughs> I hope so. Tract, um, yeah. Um, it's passage in the, no, yeah, tract, yeah. Yeah, like a path. Good, good. So he says he also founded Mutz, which is is written maths, <laughs> but it's Mutz, um, which is monastical, monastic educational centers in four localities, Sringeri in the south, Buri in the east, Dwarka in the west, Badrinath in the Himalayan north. And he says these four months are of the great monist, liberally endowed by princes and the common people, gave free instruction in Sanskrit grammar, logic, and Vedic Vedantic philosophy. Shankara's objects in locating his months in the four corners of India was the promotion of religious and national unity through the vast land. Now, you could imagine Shankaracharya, um, say, 1200 years ago <laughs> at the age of you know this is before the age of 32 so he would have been traveling around india probably by on foot or you know on her carriage horse carriage um traveling around the whole of india you know i took a month by car to go from the center of india to puri and back but he was on foot and not only was he on foot he was spreading the message as it were you know debating with people but look, just check out his insight. So we've got um, we've got Puri in the east, right? That's where he established one of the muds. And I actually went there. Um, and so this lineage actually has carried on to this day. And Self-Realization Fellowship actually uh, a few decades ago sponsored uh, the, the current head of the Swami order um, from there and invited them to the US uh, to do a tour of the US. So is relevant for us uh, in one way or the other we actually belong to this uh, lineage which is why i did the guru mantra the, the puja at the very start uh, which which is uh, what our lineage belongs so each of those gurus is uh, very deep and dear to our hearts even though they're not on the altar in spirit they are so yeah so in puri he was established puri's on as just just below uh, calcutta uh, a couple hundred miles below calcutta and um if he had gone a bit further east, so if you looked at a map of India, uh, you know, 1200 years ago, there would have been vast swathes of empires, you know, different empires, you know, different Hindu empires, it would have been back then. Um, and they would have, you know, crossed various parts of the land. So he would have, if he went a bit further east, it would have been in Bang current present day Bangladesh and or Burma. 
and the south one if you'd went a bit further south it would have been sri lanka the west one in dwarka which is in the gujarat if you went a bit further west uh, it would have been pakistan and afghanistan present day um, and remember these uh, countries as we know them on the map back then didn't exist right these are uh, afghanistan pakistan were had you know very massive buddhist communities and things like that which um, monasteries of which are still there right now um, and if you went further north um, here, the the northern one was the Badrinath, which i've uh, been to as well a couple of years ago so i've been to three of the four yeah um if if you went a bit further north then it would have just be above that is essentially tibet and uh, you go into china so He's established ones right now, just within the boundaries of India, which is a thousand years later. So can you imagine his uh, insight as to the, you'd, Guruji here describes that um, he, uh, you know, he put, he put them, located them in the four corners of India for the promotion of religious and national unity. So he's got a 1200 plus year insight as to what, after invasion, you know, the the Mughal invasion, the you know the um, the other Afghani and Persian invasions into India, and the British invasions. <laughs> He's got what India would become, what be right now is established with those quarters as as established by Shankaracharya. So it is quite a phenomena to think that he had that much insight to to this day for those corners to be relevant, or not just relevant, the actual extremities of India. Mike? Do you think it also um, became a bit of a cause of the geography of India in the sense that, like, would Hindus accept a border where Badrinath is outside of India or any of those? Is that part of the national identity a bit? I, I, it's, it's obviously, uh, you know, we're going into uh, opinions, but I don't think that that, that was the cause because um, mm -hmm. if you look at what's in currently in Tibet right now um, mm -hmm. is Gailash. So just a bit further north of uh, Badrinath, right. like uh, probably 50 miles north is Gailash mountain. And that is um, the most sacred, uh, one of the most sacred, mm -hmm. you know, most associated with Shiva, right? So it's the most, probably most sacred spot on the planet for Hindus. And that is now not in India. And similarly, mm -hmm. Sri Lanka is very important for for the Ramayan, and that is no longer mm -hmm. India. And similarly, the East and the West, even though they are, but there's there's other places in those extremities that are very important, but um, they didn't, uh, you know, go. So I don't I don't think so. But obviously, it's just uh, opinion. And also, Nehru wasn't um, when when they were establishing the borders of India and in the independence, he wasn't. He's not uh, very uh, right. Very pro. Uh, religious number one. Uh, yeah, religion yeah. is not uh, his, uh, mm -hmm. his reason for uh, defining where the borders should, should be. He wasn't himself very religious in, in that respect. <laughs> so, yeah. But again, that's just opinions. I'm sure if uh, someone with a bit more knowledge of uh, Indian history could probably correct me on that. <laughs> and then when I read Dwarka, I remember like maybe five, ten years ago, there was an article that divers found the sunken city right off the coast of Dwarka, which is like the ancient Dwarka um, that sunk into the sea at some point because the the water level rose. Um, I'm guessing if Shankaracharya was in 800, he would not have been in that Dwarka. <laughs> that he, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, probably not. Otherwise, the, the much would have, uh, be underwater right now. But no, it's still there and flourishing. <laughs> yeah in each of those uh, mm, nice yeah each of those places so um we call it uh, the char dham yatra so each of those months uh, hindus like to uh, go and see so um there's uh, as i say there's four and uh, you consider your life uh, as a hindu in terms of pilgrimages successful if you've been to each of those four months mm. um, and then there's a um, that's the big char dham. Char means four. Dham is uh, abode. Yatra is pilgrimage. So that's the original or the big char dham yatra. And then there's a small char dham yatra, which is um, 
in uh, Badrinath, which is one of them, but then there's a small one, which is like Kedranath and uh, Kedranath and Badrinath. And yeah, there's a smaller one, Gangotri and Yamunotri. So there's a smaller one there, um, which uh, I've done two of them, but um, that's also a very holy site. And that is important because just next to the caves of Badrinath is um, uh, Babaji's cave. <laughs> so mm. in some ways it's all uh, very much uh, intertwined <laughs> mm -hmm. so that's uh, quite a lovely section about um shankaracharya I... and india yeah mike chris right when, when are you going to do the fourth complete before <laughs> there's, there's, there's so much there's so much to do you know more the um more who's the prime minister of india he just released a video saying um it's just about national pride. You were saying things like, you know, save water, don't don't let water go to waste, defend your nation from, you know, critics and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things he said was that um, India is so vast that you shouldn't even think about touring another country till you've seen India. So until you've seen India, don't uh, don't go. So uh, I'm gonna see if I can see. I've or I've already travelled. Um, a lot of India, I should I would say. So um, I do still need to do that last one, as you say, Chris, because um, I'm inspired by uh, Modi's message and uh, some patriotism as well. Um, even though I'm from here and India, so I will I will do that, Chris. Thank you. Um, so yeah. So next is we'll talk about a little bit about the um, some some you know I mentioned all those gurus earlier. So we mentioned uh, from Narayan all the way to uh, Padmapada. And uh, here, we hear in this section of the footnote, we actually hear about what Padmapada, why he's famous. And uh, But we'll start with the section where it's Sanandana, a disciple of Shankara, wrote a commentary on the Brahma Sutras, Ayurvedanta philosophy. He says that the manuscript was lost by fire, but Shankara, who had glanced at it, says, repeated it word for word to his disciples. <laughs> and the text is therefore known as Panch Parika and studied by scholars to this day. And remember, we, we heard in his um, biography that he could mem just by from the age of, uh, you know, very young age, he could um, recall <laughs> and uh, recite a scripture, even if it is as long as uh, <laughs> as that. So he was uh, very capable, shall we say. But uh, there's another lovely story about this uh, Padma Bada, which, um, you know, which, which was in the Guru Puja at the start. So it says here that Chela Sanandana, which was his original name, received a new name after a beautiful incident. Seated one day on the riverbank, he heard Shankara calling him from the opposite shore. Sanandana entered the water forthwith. His faith and his feet were simultaneously supported when Shankara materialized. In the swirling river, a series of lotus flowers. The disciple was therefore known as Padmapada, i.e. lotus feet. So he to paraphrase the story, um, and this is a very popular story in Indian folklore. So he, his guru is calling him, and rather than finding a way to go to see him, he, without thought, just goes the shortest straight line distance to his guru. And his devotion and faith is such that Shankaracharya graces, graces that um, effort by manifesting lotuses under every footstep which he was which his feet were walking on and hence he then became known as Padmapada and that was what a what a wonderful story and that's that's in uh, his his name is in the Guru Mantra Guru Puja that I said at the start absolutely beautiful so let's hear a little bit about uh, Adi Shankar's himself his own initiation and how he met his guru which was Govinda Chati. So what happened was again it involves uh, a river. So 
Adi Shankara reached the banks of the river Narmada, which was flooding and about to consume his guru, Govindajati, uh, who he had not met yet, but he was immersed in samadhi meditation in a cave nearby, at, on, you know, on the bank of the river. Shankara, it said, calmed the flood by placing his water pot, similar to what I have here, in the path of the raging water. And then obviously it stopped the flood by his uh, mysticism. And then Govindajati realized what had happened. And Govindajati said, okay, who is this boy? And uh, he asked Adi Shankara who he was. And Adi Shankara then replied, No birth, no death, no caste have I, father, mother have I none. I am he, I am he, blessed spirit, I am he, I am he, I am he, blessed spirit, I am he. Mind, nor intellect, nor ego, chitta, sky, nor earth, nor metals am I. I am he, I am he, blessed spirit, I am he. I am he, I am he, blessed spirit, I am he. Thank you, Lauren. That was very beautiful. In, in India, this is a very, very revered chant. And what a beautiful story that led up to it. And what a realized being Sankaracharya must have been. And this translation of this, uh, we've, we've played you know, a chant of it in the past. But the I am he, I am he bit, which is the chorus, is Shivoham, Shivoham. Kevalatma Shivoham, um, which is the exact, um, which is the Sanskrit um, iteration or the original Sanskrit is that's what it, um, how it sounds. And when I was in um, Lakshaneshwar recently, um, Swami Achyutananda, who's one of the our foremost uh, musical experts in chanting, he. He recited the original, which is the one that I just chanted, explained this story, and then he chanted this English. And he did that for all the chants. So all of our chants have got a very beautiful history. And this one in particular is exceptionally important. Um, so important that when Guruji joined the Swami order in 1915 through his um, Guru Sri Yukteswar, he sung this chant. Um, straight after his, him joining the, the ancient Swami order. And he said his goal was absolute unity with spirit, imbuing his waking and sleeping consciousness with the thought, I am he. He roams contentedly in the world, but not of it. Thus only may he justify this title of Swami, one who seeks to achieve union with the Swa or self. So very, very, very beautiful chant. And hopefully when you um, next hear this chant in an SRF or YSS kirtan um, or meditation, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll have a bit more reverence to it, even though uh, it's, you could have infinite more reverence for it until we have our own um, realization. So that's pretty much that whole footnote. And uh, it was... Uh, quite a detailed footnote <laughs> we spent uh, over an hour on it hopefully i've done it i've done it some justice because there was some magic in there as i'm sure you'll agree as well as some uh, pretty mind mind-blowing philosophy of shankaracharya so in the book the mandukya um after he has done his um commentary shall we say he um he has an invocation to his gurus of thanks, and he ends the book with a very lovely prayer, which is uh, which is what we'll 
we're slight now. So we'll end it there. Thank you, everyone. Jay Guru and Chris, hopefully you can take us away. I prostrate to the feet of that great teacher, the most adorned among the adorable, who, out of sheer compassion for the beings, drowned in the deep ocean of the world, infested with the terrible sharks of incessant births and deaths, rescued for the benefit of all, this nectar hardly obtainable even by the gods, from the innermost depths of the ocean of the Vedas, by churning it with the churning rods of his illumined reason. I make obeisance with my whole being to those holy feet, the dispellers of the fear of this chain of births and deaths, of my great teacher, who through the light of his illumined reason destroyed the darkness of delusion enveloping my mind, who destroyed forever my notions of appearance and disappearance in this terrible ocean of innumerable births and deaths, and who makes all others also that take shelter at his feet attain to the unfailing knowledge of scriptures, peace, and the perfect state, and the state of perfect non-differentiation. <laughs>